Well, if you would, uh, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, what a privilege it is to sing of your goodness and your greatness and the praise of your name. Lord, uh, we thank you as well for just the privilege of being able to have your word. And it is a lamp to our feet, it is a light to our path. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be actively working in and through uh, the words that are spoken today, that you um, would, would mold and shape us, transform us into your image and into your likeness, help us to see you as you uh, really are, and then to reflect you in the way that would glorify and honor your great name. And so, Lord, we're just trusting you to lead and guide us, and we pray all of this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I want to invite you to grab a Bible with me this morning, or you can open that favorite Bible app that you have. But I want to invite you to join me in uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Over the last several weeks, we have been in a sermon series together called Critical Conversations. And what we've been doing is looking at some of the things that, that Jesus said to his disciples right before his crucifixion. Now, everything that Jesus said is important, but when I think about the conversations that take place here, and uh, particularly, I think that it, it seems that these are particularly important. Jesus and his disciples are together in this upper room house in Jerusalem. They start these conversations at the Last Supper, and, and Jesus and his men will leave the upper room. And they will make their way through the winding streets of Jerusalem. They'll get to the outskirts of town. They'll go down into a valley, back up the other side. And they will end up at this olive orchard, a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. It is there that Jesus is going to be arrested. These conversations are found in John chapter 13 through 17. And John records a lot of material here. But uh, we just need to know that this all happens in a relatively short period of time. The conversation that we're going to be looking at today is a conversation that doesn't so much take place between Jesus and his disciples, but this is a conversation that Jesus has with God the Father. Your Bible's open to John chapter 17. I want you to just notice the posture of Jesus at the beginning of this chapter here. And we know that it is dark outside. We know that it's night. I'm not sure if it's cloudy or if uh, there are clear skies and stars outside, but Jesus prays. And in verse 1, it begins by saying this. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And then we read this prayer. When Jesus had spoken these things, Jesus had uh, said a whole bunch of different things in chapters 13 through 16. After he says these things, he then lifts his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray. These conversations that he has, he says things like, I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit is going to come. The only way that you are ever going to be able to make it in life is if the Helper comes and enters into your life and you are going to need Him in order to do what it is that I've asked you to do. He says things like, guys, you know what? If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. You're going to do what it is that I've asked you to do over the last three years. And he repeats this over and over and over again in this critical conversation. Also in this context, he, he has talked about the vine and the branches growing. And, and he says, listen, 
it is my fa- to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. But, but if you are cut off from the vine, you're not going to be able to bear any fruit. You need to abide in me. You need to be connected to me. In John chapters 13 through 16, Jesus, also, Jesus says all of these things to his disciples. But then beginning in chapter 17 here, it says, When Jesus had spoken all of these things, that he lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays. Now this is not a short prayer, but this is a prayer that is 16, or 26 verses long. He, he had prayed another prayer. It was a shorter prayer, a prayer that's also recorded in the Gospels, often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Many of us have memorized that particular prayer, but this one here is a much longer prayer. So what does he pray for here? John chapter 17 is a documented prayer right before Jesus and his disciples get to this olive orchard and he's going to be arrested. My hope is that after today we will be able to see what it is that Jesus prayed for in this critical conversation with his men. Now I think that this is not only important to know the facts about what it is that Jesus prayed for here or the place where it took place, but I think that this prayer is important that it might impact our lives very personally. That we might see and understand the level of care and concern that Jesus has for his people and for the display of the glory of God in this world. And so uh, there are three parts to this prayer that I want us to see here today. First, Jesus prays for himself that he might be glorified. Secondly, he prays for the disciples that they might be sanctified and protected. And then he prays for us, for you and for me, that we might be united around him. Now, there are a lot of verses here, and we're not going to be able to uh, comment on each and every one of them today. But I just trust that as we uh, go through this passage, that we might see the major ideas of what was on Jesus' heart in these final moments before his arrest and his crucifixion. As Jesus begins to pray, he begins to pray for himself. And what he prays for might seem to be a little unexpected at first, but what he prays for is what we all need the most. I mean, Jesus is about to be crucified. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. If you were in his position, what would you have been praying for? Well, I can't overstate how important what it is that Jesus is about to say actually is. This is the one thing that we all need the most in life. Well, I want you to see what he says in the second part of verse 1 down through verse 5. And I want you to pay close attention to the number of times that the word glory or uh, some form of that is used here in the text. Jesus prays this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now... This is the thing that we need the most. And at first glance, you might say, well, well, Jason, what are you talking about here? 
The thing that we need the most is to recognize that Jesus is the most valuable thing, that there is nothing more important in the entire universe than him. You might say, well, why that thing? Why is that the thing that we need the most? Why is the thing that we need the most uh, to glorify God? And, And why is it that Jesus is praying for this right here before he's about to die? Well, let me see if I can explain it this way. I know that right now there are no sports being played. There are no large gatherings in big arenas that are taking place. But when there are sports, why is it that we don't go and pay big money to just watch ordinary people play something like baseball? I mean, why don't we pay big money to go watch Jamie and Johnny just out in the park hitting little uh, ground balls on the ground? I mean, we we don't go pay big money to go see that. No, we want to go see uh, major league athletes. We want to see superstars doing amazing things. I mean, if you're going to buy a ticket with your hard-earned money, don't you want to see unbelievable athletes doing unbelievable things? You're not going to go pay to watch an average person just do average things. Why is that? Or if you go to the movies, I mean, you're not going to go pay uh, for a, a movie that is just like this low-budget film with no-name actors who aren't very good. I, I mean, you're not going to spend your money uh, on those things. You, you, when you spend your money, you're going to spend it on the best of the best. You, you want to watch people who are talented and who really are able to sell a story. You, you, you don't want to see an average story. You want to see a great story with beautiful cinematography and scenery. And, and when it's all over, you want to kind of sit back and be able to say, wow, I mean, how did they ever do that? If you go to a concert, I imagine that you want to go to the best venue. You don't want to spend money to watch an average person just kind of plunking away on the piano. No, you want to watch someone who is talented and uh, where you would say, I don't have any idea how they were able to make those sounds. Generally, we are not overly interested in watching average people doing average things. We want to see extraordinary things. Well, what I'm trying to say is uh, true joy comes not from being great ourselves, but by seeing and beholding greatness. Now, I think that this is hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around because uh, we live in such a self-exalting culture. Most of us would probably naturally think, you know, I I think what would bring me the greatest joy is if I was just totally amazing at something. But I would say no to that because uh, what, what really brings uh, real lasting joy is seeing and experiencing true greatness. A greatness that is far beyond you or far beyond me. And you might have experienced great athletes or uh, great musicians, great actors in your lifetime. But what I'm really getting at here is the greatness of Jesus Christ. You read through the gospel accounts and what sticks out are some words that are repeated over and over again where it says, and everyone was amazed. And everyone was amazed. I mean, Jesus taught and people are hanging on his every word. When he heals, people are amazed that he can do these things. When he casts out demons and he calms the storm, it says that people were amazed. 
Why, why are people just flocking to Jesus and wanting to be around him? Well, I think that in many ways they want to see, they are seeing the glory of God on display, and that is so very, very attractive. If you skip down to uh, verse 24 in this passage, Jesus says this. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am so that my glory, uh, so that uh, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And Jesus says, I, I want people to see my glory on display because that's the most important thing in life. That's the thing that's going to transform and change them. I mean, uh, we get excited about little things like our favorite athletes hitting home runs or something like that. But the glory of God far outshines that. It, it is far more significant that one day we are going to see Jesus in all of his glory. And here, as Jesus opens this prayer, he says, I, I just want people to see and to know my glory, the majesty that uh, you gave me before you created the world. I want people to know that the greatest treasure in all of life is me. You know, as I was thinking about this, I, I thought about this parable that Jesus would tell, Matthew chapter 13. It's a parable called the, the parable of the hidden treasure. And so I brought this box along with me this morning to kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about here. Uh, but Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven and he, and he talks about how there is this man who is out in this field, and I don't know, maybe he's digging around a little bit or just kind of poking around, something like that. But he's out in this field, and he comes across this treasure box. Uh, someone had put this treasure box out there in the ground, but, but this guy discovers it. And so he uh, starts cleaning off the top of it, kind of moving the dirt aside. And then he looks inside it. And when he looks inside it, he just cannot believe his eyes. He can't believe what he is seeing here. He thinks to himself, well, you know what? Um, if I take this treasure from this field, the person who owns this field might try to come back and take this treasure back. And so uh, if the field was actually mine, then the treasure would be mine as well. And so he takes this treasure, he puts it back in the ground, he covers it back up, and then he goes and he finds everything that he has. He takes everything that he owns and he sells it, he gets rid of it, and he goes and he buys this field so that he can have this treasure and it can be clearly and fully his. Jesus says that this parable is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. That there are two parts in this parable. The first part is finding the treasure. That, that, that he's out there in this field and he discovers this box that has this treasure in it. And he recognizes that this is an unbelievably valuable treasure. But the second part of the parable is obtaining the treasure. And so this guy realizes that he, everything that he owns doesn't even compare to what this treasure is worth. And so he sells everything that he has in order that he can go and buy this field and then get this treasure. Jesus says that's what the kingdom of, uh, of heaven is like. That at some point we come across this treasure. At some point our eyes need to be opened so that we can recognize Jesus for the treasure that he really is. He is the greatest treasure, and if we have Him, then we have everything. 
But it, it does us no good if we just leave Jesus buried out in some field somewhere. What he calls us to do is to give up everything and to come follow him. Jesus' disciples had done just that. They had given up their, their jobs like fishing and tax collecting and other things in order to follow him around for three years. But for them to continue this mission, for them to be all in for him, they were going to have to see and to know his glory, particularly as it relates to eternal life. In just a few hours, uh, he would be dead, uh, dying on a cross. He would die for the sins of the world. But, that, but he wouldn't stay dead. He would be resurrected. He would conquer sin. He would conquer death. Uh, so, something that no one else could ever do. He is the greatest treasure. Now these 11 disciples who are gathered with Jesus in this moment, they're not the only people who need to know and to see the glory of Jesus. Today, we need to see more than anything else, Jesus is the greatest treasure. He is worth giving up everything else in order to have him. That's the first thing that Jesus prays for in this prayer. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence so that people may see and know that I am the greatest treasure. Second part of this uh, prayer, it, it just has to do specifically with Jesus' disciples and that they might be sanctified, that they might be set apart, and that they might be protected. We see this beginning in verse uh, 6, where Jesus describes how the Father has given him these specific disciples. In, in verse 8, uh, we read this. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus is going to be crucified on a Roman cross in a matter of hours these 11 guys, minus Judas, have been with Jesus for three years. They had seen his miracles. They had heard him teach. They had seen him live this perfect life that reflected God the Father. They believed that Jesus had been sent to this earth by the Father in order to bring salvation to the world. These 11 guys would be the core group who would then take the gospel and they would, that they had received and they would continue this mission of Jesus in the world. And so what Jesus prays here for his disciples is very significant. He prays for their protection in verse 11 and verse 15. We read this. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. If they were going to have any chance of continuing this mission of Jesus in the world, they were going to need help doing it. They, they would totally fail in their own strength and in their own power. And so Jesus prays that they would be kept by the Father and that, 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 that they would be protected from the evil one. Jesus doesn't just pray for their protection, though, here. Uh, he, he prays something else in verse uh, 17. 
Verse 17, he prays this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He says, set these men apart so that the the things that they write down, the things that they say, are the things that might uh, be, be filled with the truth and other people would hear that. John is one of the men who was with Jesus that night as Jesus prays this prayer to the Father. Later on, the Holy Spirit would bring this prayer back to his memory and he would write this down for our benefit today. But but John didn't just write the Gospel of John. John also wrote uh, a few other letters to early Christians who were following in the way of Jesus as well. And in John chapter 1, John writes this, he says... That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He says, we, we've, given, we've been given this privileged position because we were with Jesus. We saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. The events that took place in his life, we saw those things happen. His death, his resurrection. We, we got a behind-the-scenes the look into his teachings. When he would teach and people sometimes would not understand everything that he was talking about, he would kind of pull us aside and he would explain to us what was going on. He says, we know and we have seen these specific things about Jesus. And we have been sent by him on this mission of declaring these things, this truth, to the world. These men were going to have a specific role in communicating the truth of who Jesus is to the rest of the world, including to us. They have been chosen, they've been set apart, and they would all be persecuted just as Jesus had told them they would be. But Satan, the evil one, he would not ultimately be able to hold back the mission of God and the spread of the gospel in the world. In fact, today, we, we know about Jesus and what he taught, about what it is that, uh, what it means to follow him because of the testimony of these very disciples that Jesus is praying for here. I mean, when you think about this, how were you able to learn about Jesus being the greatest treasure of the world? Maybe you first heard about Jesus from a friend or a coworker, a neighbor, a classmate, a family member. But eventually, you needed to read the Word of God for yourself. And the only way that any of us would be able to come to acknowledge the saving power and work of Jesus Christ in our lives is when the Holy Spirit begins to work in and through us and that we see and read the testimony of these disciples of Jesus who have been set apart and whose message had been protected by the Lord. You know, it's these very disciples who would see Jesus arrested in the olive orchard. They would see him on trial for his life, beaten throughout the night. They would see him carry that wooden heavy cross beam through the winding streets of Jerusalem and to the outskirts of town. He would be hung on the cross, spit on, mocked. He would be humiliated. At three in the afternoon, he would die. He went through all of this in order to take the sin of the world upon himself. Your sin and my sin. They would put him in an empty tomb. The tomb would be sealed, it would be guarded, and it would seem as if everything was over. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he was resurrected from the dead in order to prove that he has power over both sin and death. 
the way that we would hear these details and know about this life-giving story, the treasure that Jesus is, is through disciples of Jesus here. And here Jesus just prays for them and he says, Father, set them apart and protect them from the evil one. I think he prays this for them because uh, there, there would be all of these pressures from the world. They would be pulled in all of these different directions. There would be people who would say things about them, who would do things to them. They would face persecution. They would not be immune from temptation. They would not be immune to caving into the ideas of the world. If they were going to stand firm, it would take the power and the presence of God working in their lives. And so Jesus prays, Father, set them apart and protect them. Now, I know that originally this prayer of Jesus was prayed for his 11 disciples. But I think that this prayer is very appropriate and very necessary for us today as well. If we are going to have any shot of following in the footsteps of Jesus, of following in the footsteps of these disciples, of being on mission with Jesus, then we need God to sanctify us, to set us apart, and to protect us from the evil one. I, I think of all the opportunities that we have to represent Christ in our families, uh, with our work relationships, uh, with our neighbors, uh, serving in the body of Christ, our friendships, People are watching us. People are listening to what we say. And just like the disciples, we face temptation as well. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not trying to say that we are just like the, the, the apostles. I mean, we are not the apostles. The apostles were these men who were uniquely selected and chosen by Jesus for this specific task. But in the same way that the disciples faced temptation, we too face temptation. And today we also need the protection of God to keep us connected to Him and abiding in Him. And so the first thing that Jesus prays for here is that He prays for Himself, that He would be glorified, because what each one of us needs most in life is His glory, is to see His glory, to see that Jesus is the greatest treasure. Secondly, he prays for his disciples that they would be set apart for this special mission to take the message of Jesus to the world and that they would be protected from the evil one because their testimony would impact the entire world. But the third thing that Jesus prays for is he prays for us as believers. He prays for you and for me that we might be united in Christ. In verses 20 and 21, we read this. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be, they, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Uh, again, in verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What Jesus wants us to experience here is a unity that is based in and around the truth of who he is. It is not a unity that is based in our own opinions, but it is based on how he has revealed himself and what the disciples have said. And it is a unity that is going to impact the world. 
want you to uh, just think specifically for a moment about the people in our church, St. Paul's Bible Church. I mean, there are young and there are old. There are men and women. There are people of different races and ethnicities. And, you know, those are things that can be observed from the outside. But then if you look a little bit closer, you see that there are teachers and students. You see that there are professionals and retirees. That there are office workers and retail workers. And there are people who lived in this neighborhood and then people who maybe grew up in other neighborhoods. And, and there are people who have lived in the city their entire lives and then others who have spent large portions of their lives outside of the city, maybe in some small town somewhere. Now, if you think about that, on one level, there are many differences between all of us. I mean, we dress differently, we have different hobbies, we have different types of houses and apartments that we live in, we have different foods that we really love, and the list could go on and on and on. But, but the thing that unites us here is Jesus, and the truth of the gospel is stronger than any sports team or even any relationship, friendship. We, we share something that is greater than just having a common experience together. We share Jesus Christ. Our identity comes from Him. And when we see Him as the greatest treasure, when we are united to Him, the way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are connected and united to each other, that impacts the world uh, around us. And it causes the world to believe in Jesus. Listen, all that God has given to Jesus... He is also given to us. In the beginning of this passage, Jesus said, Glorify me that I might glorify you. And now as, it's as if Jesus is saying, You know what? I, I just need you to be unified in me so that the glory that is seen in me, the glory that is seen in the Father, will also be seen in you by the world. How does Jesus want to show the world that he loves them? And that his love is infinite and uh, unimaginable. Well, he, he wants to show his love for the world by us being united around him. I think that Jesus prays this prayer for us because this is going to be really challenging for us to do. It is going to take effort. It is going to take the power of God at work in our lives in order for us to be able to accomplish this. It is going to take a single-minded devotion to Him. It's going to take humility. It is going to impact the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we treat each other. It is not going to be an easy thing to do. Now, when we read about this unity here, I'm reminded about what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about how God has given these different gifts to different people. And he just says, you know what, there is one body, but many members. And each member has a different role to play in the body. And we can't function properly unless we are united together around Christ and each one of us is playing our role. Jesus is praying for this unity in John chapter 17, but he is not praying for us to just all look alike and to um, do the same things, that we do what everybody else is doing. What, what he is praying for here is that we might embrace the unique way that God has designed us individually in his own image, and that at the same time, we might be united around the gospel. The fact is that Jesus died for our sins, and that is the only way, receiving him is the only way that we can get to God, the only way that we can be accepted by God. 
That, that's something that we all need to agree on. We, we, we can't disagree on that at all. But at the same time, there are non-essential things, secondary things, that we may see things and do things a little bit differently. But in those moments, there, there needs to be a particular, we need to respond with love and compassion and kindness as we are united around the truth of the gospel of Jesus. This is Jesus' last prayer with his disciples before he crosses the Kidron Valley. He goes back up the other side to the olive orchard where he's going to pray in private and then he's going to be arrested. He will be on a cross at 9 o'clock the next morning. There are just a few things that he wants to pray for his disciples here, that he wants to pray for us, that he wants to pray for himself. And, and, and he wants us to know these things. On the heart of Jesus is first and foremost that, that he, we might see His glory. He really wants us to know and to experience that He is the greatest treasure in all of life. So great is He that it, it, it's worth giving up everything else in order to have Him. As He prays, uh, He continues and prays for His disciples and He prays that they would be protected from the evil one, that they would be kept in the truth so that when people would read their testimony and hear their testimony, they would come to believe in Him. They would see His glory and understand that He is such an invaluable treasure. And then finally, He prays for everyone who would come to faith in Him. He prays that, that we would be united and just like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit experience this connectedness, this interwovenness, that, that we too would experience a unity that is around the gospel and that might affect and impact and transform the lives of many, many people in this world for the sake of eternity. And so, along with Jesus, our desire ought to be that He might be glorified so that we might be transformed. And that the world might believe. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your care for us, for your disciples, for your glory. Lord, more than anything else, we want to treasure you. We want to see your glory. And just as you have prayed, Father, we pray that you would glorify the Son. That we would see Him and understand the great price that He paid and the treasure that He is and what it means to have eternal life and that is found in you and you alone. Lord, might, you, might, might the truth of that impact our lives in very deep and practical ways. And Lord, just as well as we pray for ourselves, Lord, we pray that there would be a unity around the gospel, that nothing else would stand in the way. That, that nothing else would distract us from the main thing of bringing glory and honor to your name. We pray this all in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.